And when she got there, she saw twelve stone chairs, almost like thrones, around that bonfire. What was I thinking? I was not a cook. And what a magnificent voice he had. We love stories! It's time for the Apple Seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more. And today, we've got an hour's worth of terrific stories from folks like Dolores Hydock and Christopher Liebrick and Bob Reiser. And we're going to start with a story by Dan Kedding, the Chicago area storyteller. Tells stories from all over the world and some from his personal life as well. Some of the stories that he knows from other lands he got from his Croatian grandmother. And today, we're going to share a story from Dan called Strawberries in Winter. It's a story about about kindness, about how being good to other people can often bring kindness back into our lives as well. Strawberries in Winter from Dan Kedding on the Appleseed. Once there was a young girl named Mariska who lived with her stepmother and her half-sister Lucy. Life had been pleasant when Mariska's father was alive, she had beautiful things, she had her own room, and she and Lucy shared all the tasks around the house. But since his death, life had changed. All her beautiful things went to Lucy. Mariska lived behind the kitchen in a small room now, and all the jobs around the house fell on her shoulders. She had to do the washing and the cleaning. She had to take care of the animals and the farm. She had to do the cooking. Everything was done by Mariska. And Lucy? She sat up in her room, looking in a mirror, thinking how beautiful she was. And the shame of it was, Lucy wasn't beautiful at all. Mariska was. All the kindness and beauty and love inside her, all the patience, came out in her face, and it radiated beauty. Lucy, on the other hand, was petty and mean-spirited and not kind at all. And all that pettiness and mean-spiritedness came to her face, and she was quite ugly. As they grew older, the stepmother realized that no boy would ever come and court Lucy as long as Mariska was around. They would walk in the house and take one look at her and forget Lucy existed. And so the two of them came up with a plan to do away with Mariska. It was January. It was a cold, wintry night. When Lucy came down and said, Sister, I fancy some violets for my hair. Mother bought me a brand new blue dress, and I want to have violets to match it. Marishka laughed and said, Lucy, it's winter out. There's ice and snow everywhere, and it's cold. There are no violets. But her stepmother grabbed her from behind and twirled her around and said, You do what your sister tells you, child. If she wants violets, you'll go find her violets. And don't you come back without them. And the door was opened, and she was thrust out into the cold night. And the last words she heard were, And if you do come back without them, you'll get a beating. And the door slammed. Poor Mariska, she walked through the forest, she walked through the pastures, looking for violets, knowing that all she would find was snow and ice. Finally she saw a fire up on top of a hill, and being cold, she walked towards it. It was a huge bonfire, and when she got there she saw Twelve stone chairs, almost like thrones, around that bonfire. 
sitting in three of them were three older people. In the next three, three middle-aged people. In the next, three younger people. And in the last three, three even younger. And Marishka realized she must be looking at the twelve months of the year. Finally, the cold overcame her fear, and she approached the fire. She curtsied to the eldest of all the months, January, the king of the year. And he looked down from his throne. His pale blue eyes stared at her. His white hair fell around his still powerful shoulders. What is it you want, child? he asked her. Please, may I warm myself by your fire? He said, of course you may. And as she warmed herself by the fire, he asked her, What brings you out on such a cold winter night? Marishka turned and said, My sister wants violets for her hair, and my stepmother has sent me in search of them. And January started to laugh, Violets in winter! Child, there's snow and ice everywhere, there are no violets! Marishka looked at him and she said, If I do not bring them, they will beat me. And his eyes narrowed, and he turned to his right and he said, Brother March, come here. And March approached January's throne, and January took the wand that he held in his right hand, and he held it to his brother March. And the minute March took hold of it, the snow and the ice disappeared. Warm winds came up, and a field of violets spread before her. March said, Pick them quickly, child. And she picked an apron full. She curtsied and thanked them, and she ran home. When she came through the door, her stepmother said, Didn't I tell you not to come back till you? And then she looked down and saw the violets in her apron. Where did you find these? I found them up on the hills. There were still some left. And Lucy took all those violets and made braids for her hair and chains for her neck and never gave one to Marishka. The next afternoon, Lucy came down from her room and said, Marishka, I fancy some strawberries for my lunch. Strawberries in winter, Marishka laughed. Sister, with snow and ice everywhere, there can be no strawberries in winter. But again, her stepmother grabbed her from behind. She shoved her rudely out the door and said, Don't you come back without them or I will beat you. And poor Marishka wandered through the hills and the pastures. And finally she saw the smoke from that fire, and she approached it, and again she asked January if she could warm herself. And while she was warming herself by the fire, January looked down and said, What are you looking for today, child? My sister wants strawberries for her lunch. Strawberries in winter? There's ice and snow everywhere. There are no strawberries this time of year. If I don't bring them back, they will beat me. January's eyes narrowed. He turned to his right again and said, Sister June, come here. And June walked over, and he handed her his wand. And she took it, and the winter fell away, spring came and went, and there were strawberries everywhere. And she said, Hurry, child, pick as many as you can, but quickly. And Marishka filled her apron with strawberries. She curtsied and thanked them, and she ran home. And when she came in, those strawberries filled the house with their aroma. And Lucy and her mother could not believe their eyes. 
And Lucy took them and ate them almost all herself, never offering one to Mariska and hardly any to her own mother. That evening, Lucy came to her and said, You have found me violets, and you have found me strawberries. Now go and find me apples, because I want an apple for my supper. But, sister, it's winter. But before she could say another word, she was thrust out into the cold, and her stepmother told her, If you come back without them, you know what I'll do. And so poor Marishka wandered through the winter night till she came to the bonfire and her twelve friends. She curtsied and asked if she could warm herself. And this time January didn't smile. He just nodded his great head. And as she was warming herself, he said, What do they want this time, child? Marishka looked and said, They want apples. Apples in winter. January nodded his head, and he turned and said, Brother September, and September came forward. He handed the wand to September, and September took it, and the winter faded away. Spring came and went, and so did summer, and fall came, and there were apples on the trees. But when she approached the tree, January said to her, You may only take two, child, just two. And she shook the tree, and two apples fell, she took them, she curtsied and thanked him and left, and he watched her go. When she came home, she presented the apples to her stepmother and Lucy. Where are the rest? they asked her. Well, I could only take two. And she was struck from behind by her stepmother and said, You lazy child, you just didn't want to carry any more. And Pumarishka ran to her room crying. And the two of them ate their apples and they were the finest apples they had ever eaten. Oh, they tasted so sweet. And they looked at each other and they said, If she can find two, we can find more. No one can say no to us. And so they put on their boots and their shawls, and they left, and they walked through the winter night, and they followed her footsteps through the snow till they came to that bonfire. But did they ask permission to warm themselves? No. They just walked right in and started warming their hands and face. January looked down, and he knew who they were. And he said, What do you want now, Lucy? And Lucy looked and faced him and said, Nothing that concerns you, old man. Whatever I want, I'll find on my own, thank you very much. And she and her mother turned and walked into the woods, still searching for the apple trees. And as they went, January watched them, and his blue eyes grew as cold as ice, and he took hold of his wand, and he held it tighter and tighter and tighter, and the winds howled, and the snow came, and the ice was everywhere. Now Marishka waited for her sister and stepmother to come home for a long, long time, but they never did. And some people say she married one of the boys in the village and settled down. Others say she became a great farmer in her own right. Whichever ending you choose to believe for Marishka, I'm sure it was much happier than the ending that her stepmother and Lucy met. Strawberries in Winter from Dan Kedding. Pleasure to bring you that tale as a beginning to our hour. After a quick break, we're going to be back with uh, more stories, including a tall tale from Christopher Liebrick about a sassy pet fish. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne.
You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story called Strawberries in Winter, told for you by the Chicago-area storyteller Dan Kedding. Coming up in just a little bit, you're going to hear a tall tale from Christopher Liebrich about a sassy pet fish. But first, because we know that sharing memories can often be the spark that ignites a memory or a story for you that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or around the living room, I'll share a memory of my own. This one is about setting up chairs at church. Here's an entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I have a church job. Maybe you have a job at your church, too. Part of mine is that every other week I go set up chairs in the space beyond the chapel. These enormous accordion doors open up at the back of the chapel to the space that's usually the basketball court, but on Sundays is used for extra folks who come to church but can't get a seat on the pews in the chapel. And twice a month, I set the chairs up back there. I make sure there's plenty of elbow room, plenty of space between chairs for a time such as this. Still, I probably set up 60 or 70 chairs back there. A lot of people have church jobs like that. At my church, there's no regular cleaning staff on what is really a pretty big building, so members of the congregation take turns each Sunday. Three or four families are assigned to show up at the church and vacuum the floor and wash the windows and clean the bathroom fixtures and otherwise get the place all ready for Sunday worship. They usually do it on Saturday. And with everyone in the congregation taking turns, it might be your family's turn a couple or maybe three times a year. Now, church jobs, not a big deal, right? Well, I remember some time ago, I'm at the church early in the morning on a Sunday, setting up chairs. It's quiet, and I roll back the big accordion doors, and I start hefting plastic chairs and setting them in distanced groups over the floor of the basketball court. I figure the church has been cleaned on Saturday, and I'll just enjoy my time setting up chairs. Now, basketballs, I see, have been left on the floor of the court. A few people have left drink cups on the stacks of chairs that line the walls. In order to set up the chairs, I've got to move those drink cups myself and take them to the garbage can. And it seems like there's dust just about everywhere. In fact, as I fold back the big accordion doors, enormous dust bunnies roll out from under the doors and waft across the wooden floor of the gym. And as I'm doing this, I can't help but think, come on, guys, someone was supposed to clean this building yesterday. What's going on? And before long, I've given myself wholeheartedly over to this kind of self-righteous whining, this eye-rolling at whomever the anonymous derelict is that was assigned to clean the church yesterday and didn't. I mean, how lazy, right? After all, I'm here early on a Sunday morning setting up chairs. I'm doing my church job. What's wrong with the folks who might have been assigned to clean up all this stuff yesterday, whoever they are? Well, in this vein, I slogged forward, lifting plastic chairs from their stacks and setting them up where people could use them to enjoy the morning's meetings. 
And I guess, honestly, I was less sore than I'm making myself sound. Some of this is probably for storytelling effect. But I can't let myself off the hook completely. I was bugged as I set up those chairs at the clear failings of the folks who came yesterday to clean. Whoever they were, they had actually done a pretty lousy job. And then... Just as I was finishing up, each chair placed in a neat group, the basketball court effectively transformed into an extension of the chapel, I suddenly remembered something. What's today's date? I found myself asking right out loud. I pulled my phone out of my pocket and checked the date, and then, just to be sure of what I had suddenly come to fear, I flipped through emails until I found it. It was an email sent by the guy in our congregation who coordinates the church cleaning schedule. And there it was in black and white, an email from that guy sent a month or so ago asking me and my family if we'd take our turn to clean the church this very weekend. And there in front of me is my reply to the guy who sent the email. Absolutely, I had written. We'd be glad to. Count on us. That email had been sent just a moment after I had received the cleaning assignment email, after which, for one reason or another, I promptly and aggressively forgot about it. I forgot it so completely that the information didn't even make it from me to my wife or any of our kids. And there I stood, in a basketball court full of chairs, having spent the last half hour complaining about the folks who had been assigned to clean the church that weekend, remembering in a panic that the folks who had been assigned to clean the church that weekend were me. Well, the oversight embarrassed me, to say the least. The self-righteous attitude that I had afforded myself over the last half hour embarrassed me. Suddenly, the stray basketballs and drink cups and dust bunnies embarrassed me. And there are probably a lot of lessons I could have learned that day. Here's the one I learned. I imagined my fellow churchgoers showing up in a while for Sunday meetings, and I imagined each of them harboring the same ill feelings as I'd held for the person or persons who had, or in this case hadn't, cleaned up the church on Saturday. And then I thought about that person or persons. I was pretty intimately acquainted with them, with him, And I knew he wasn't evil or malicious or lazy, just boneheaded, forgetful. And I resolved in the future to go easier in my heart on my good neighbors in response to whatever they might have done or left undone or forgotten or inadvertently caused. And in addition to resolving to be more careful at keeping my calendar and writing things down, I resolved to think on my neighbors as I suddenly hoped on that Sunday that they might think on the person that I knew was me. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Again, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts that you can share with the people that you love. Share them with us at our email address, theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. A tall tale from Christopher Liebrich and stories from Dolores Hydock and more coming up in just a moment. First, however, a conversation with a friend. 
great stories come into our lives in so many ways, certainly through the telling of tales passed on from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations, but also through the films that we see and even the food that we eat and certainly the books that we choose to bring into our hearts and into our lives. And talking about all of the ways in which great stories come into our lives is something that we love to do on The Appleseed, and we love to do it with friends. I'm thrilled to be joined behind microphones. These are distant microphones from each other. I'm here in the Appleseed studio. Rachel Wadham is far away, but here we are talking about books together. Rachel, it's so great to have you with me here today. Oh, I'm so glad that stories bring us together, Sam, no matter no matter where we are, no matter even where if we're we at are. home or far away. <laughs> Rachel, stories connect us. <laughs> Rachel is a favorite to have on the show, and she, of course, is the Education and Juvenile Collections Librarian at Brigham Young University. And today, we're going to talk about a young adult novel called The Fountains of Silence. Take us into this story, will you? Oh, this is just an extraordinary story. And I can't say enough good things about this book. And, it, you know, it is just an amazingly well-told book. I mean, yeah. it it's absolutely amazing. It's by Ruta Septis, and it's set in Spain in 1957. And if you are familiar with Spain at that period, <laughs> this is when General Franco was in power, just yeah. at the end of his power in Spain. For those who don't know about Franco, it was a really dark time for Spain. A lot of things came to light about the things that Franco did and the kind of human rights issues that yeah. were really, really tricky at that time. And this is a, a beautiful book. It's about a young girl who has lived in Spain her whole life. And at this time in the 50s, Spain is starting to open up, particularly to the United States. And so Americans are coming into the country. A young man comes with his father and mother. His mother is actually Spanish. She fled to the United States. And his father is an oil baron. Hmm. They're coming into the country to kind of do deals <laughs> for right. oil and that kind of stuff and to bring American culture into that. And this young man and this young woman meet. And it's this kind of interesting clash of cultures of, you know, how do we kind of balance what the Americans know and what the Spanish know and, and how do we, you know, balance that dynamic? It ends up being a lovely, sweet little love story as well, which how can you not love a love story? They're all just perfect. Um, but it really is just a beautiful retelling. For me, I had the opportunity of traveling to Spain. Spain captured my heart in a very foundational way and culture and the art and, you know, just the things we experienced. And I'm like, wow, I didn't expect that. Yeah. And so for me, this book brought up some beautiful memories of yeah. that trip and of a country that I fallen in love with. And additionally, it helped me to see some history that yeah. I hadn't been entirely familiar with, even having traveled to Spain and been able to be in Spain. I had heard of General Franco, you know, I mean, you, you've, you've right. heard of these kinds of things, yeah. but I never really experience that. And so this was a wonderful experience for me that kind of juxtaposed my own experience in Spain with this interesting historical experience from Spain and how those two kind of melded together and actually deepened my love for the country and its people and yeah. the things that they had gone through that I didn't significantly know when I was sure. actually in the country. And now um, imagine what it will be like 
when you have another experience to go to yep. Spain mm -hmm. with this story. Exactly. And this story has brought into your life exactly. uh, under your belt, you know, yeah. that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing that stories can do. One of the things I tell people, you know, when they say, well, you know, how can I gauge with stories with my kids? And I say, well, if you guys are, if you're going to travel, I mean, right now, family vacations are tricky, yeah. <laughs> right? But what? hopefully, family hopefully vacation? what a family vacation, actually <laughs> yeah. leaving the house, what, you know, but you know, hopefully in the future, after a pandemic leaves, right. us, you'll start yeah. traveling again. And I say, one of the things that I encourage families to do is to do this, right? To engage with the stories of yeah. the places that they're traveling. And this doesn't have to just be, you know, I, we're going to Spain. So let's, let's do that. It can be, we're going to a national park. Yeah. Right? right. Let's find some really great story. I mean, there's amazing stories about the national parks and how they were instituted and the amazing people, right? I mean, Teddy Roosevelt is like my favorite president of all time. <laughs> and one of the reasons is because of his connection to the establishing of the national parks, right? Sure. Yeah. And so yeah. for me, that's one of those things that I just love is when you travel, when you go places, even before you go, see what the stories are. Yeah. But particularly when you get there, find those museums, find those places where you can hear the stories because <laughs> every city, every place you go, no matter how small or how big, is going to have beautiful stories in history. And engaging with that just makes that travel experience richer. And then it makes your life richer yeah. because you see different people and you see different experiences and you're able to engage with that in a really foundational way. I hear it, in what yeah. you're saying, I hear an invitation to make an effort to discover the stories that are there when you're there. Exactly. Prepare yourself for going somewhere by acquainting yourself with some of its stories as, as, yep. as you can, you know, and enriching your experience, enriching every experience that you have with the stories of the place where you are. What a... What well a, said, that's Sam. A, that's, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have Rachel Wadham with us. We've been talking about the book, The Fountains of Silence, a YA novel that's worth picking up. I must say that as we chat here, Rachel and I, on Zoom, I can see her Zoom background is so terribly appropriate to her. It is a drawing of an enormous library. Library, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to be in my library, no that's matter where right. I am. Even, even if I'm virtual, I have to... I have to be in my library. Right. That's my home, Sam. Yours is a recording studio. <laughs> that's right. Mine's yeah. a library. <laughs> well, it's may all of us interact sufficiently with libraries that we can enrich our lives with great books. And what a pleasure to have Rachel with us. Thanks for being with us, Rachel. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Always a pleasure to chat with Rachel Wadham about a great book. We're going to take a quick break and then back with a story from Dolores Haddock called Sharing the Gold. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Dolores Hydock called Sharing the Gold. And in this tale, we follow Dolores through a time when she wanted to do something but lacked the motivation to make it happen. Armed with a commitment to eat healthier and a membership to a local farm, Dolores takes some initiative and finds it a lot harder to reach her goals than she thought she would. And when Mom comes to help out, will things get easier? You're going to find out in Sharing the Gold by Dolores Hydock on the apple seed.
every once in a while, some impulse takes hold of my brain and convinces me that I need to eat right. I don't mean diets. I mean, you know, eat healthier, more carefully, more consciously. Fortunately, this impulse usually passes in a couple of days. But a couple of summers ago, I don't know, it just seemed like a really good idea at the time. I decided I was going to not just eat more healthfully, I was going to eat organically. An article in the newspaper told me about the local organic farm just south of town. And that farm was going to help me, was going to make it easy for me to eat healthier, better, lower on the food chain, pesticide free, for a small fee of just a few hundred dollars. <laughs> I could become a member, a gold share member of the organic farm. And every week, all during the growing season, I could go and pick up my gold share of the farm's bounty. Fingerling potatoes, purple bell peppers, crispy green apples, carrots, kale, whatever God compost and crop rotation made available that week was going to fill my table with colorful, fiber-filled, vegan variety. Yes, I could just go to the farmer's market every week, but that would require making a healthy eating decision every Saturday. This way, I was prepaid. I was pre-committed to a summertime free from the temptations of fast food hamburgers and the disappointments of grocery store tomatoes. So a quick swipe of my MasterCard, and I was a Gold Share member. An email gave me the time and location of my pickup spot. Wednesday mornings, 11 a.m., the field behind the parking lot behind the Amp South Bank on Highway 119. The first Wednesday of my gold share season, I pulled into the field, parked the car. There were three other vehicles already there, each containing a single silent driver. I went up to the maroon Dodge Caravan with the smoky windows. The window rolled down. I leaned in. Are you here for the vegetables? <laughs> I felt like I should be wearing a fedora and trench coat. Uh, yeah, he said. Well, do you know how this works? I mean, I, I haven't ever been here before. Do you? Daddy, he punched me! The two little boys playing in the back seat started fighting. The window rolled up. I backed away. The woman in the hybrid Civic did not look up for her magazine, so I went over to the woman in the white Volvo. The window rolled down. I leaned in. You here for the vegetables? Yeah, she said. This feels like a drug drop, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, she said, except for the fact that we're middle-aged women in capri pants driving Volvos and BMWs. She had a point. Another car pulled into the field, and the woman sitting in the hybrid Civic recognized the driver, called her by name. They were veterans. They knew each other from last year. Volvo, Liz, and I converged on the other two. How does this work? Do you get to pick whatever vegetables you want, or do you have to take whatever they give you? Hey, I don't want any red beets. Oh, I hate red beets. No, red beets are great. You just roast them in a little olive oil. They're wonderful. Yeah, well, you can have my radishes. Oh, I can't eat radishes. They come up on me. We had <laughs> no idea what you were supposed to do with kale. The young man in the Maroon Dodge caravan did not join our conversation. One of the veterans, Mary, said, oh, he's not unfriendly. He just has his two little boys with him. And the other women said in unison, bless his heart. <laughs> Eleanor, the other veteran, confessed that she still had bell peppers and onion chopped up in her freezer from last year. It starts to pile up by the end of the season, she said. By last August, my husband was sneaking out to Dairy Queen for chili dogs. 
Mary recognized the red and white striped sides of the pickup truck hurtling down the highway toward us. Here he comes, she said. The truck pulled in, parked in the field, driver's side open. A young man got out. He had a long blonde ponytail and a t-shirt that said, got tofu? <laughs> he propped up the striped sides of the truck, kind of a little canopy. It looked like a circus tent. An older man got out of the passenger side with a clipboard, checked off our names, issued each of us a wax-coated cardboard box. Remember to bring your box with you every week. I took my box, passed on my gold share of rutabagas, turnip greens, dill, took my gold share of carrots, green beans, baby lettuces, strawberries. I felt healthier already as I loaded that box into the back seat of my car. As I drove home, all those vitamins and antioxidants were surging into my bloodstream by osmosis. Hey, by good intentions alone, we're worth a 10-point drop in my bad cholesterol. <laughs> home again, I dumped out the vegetables on the kitchen counter. A tiny black bug sneaked out from underneath a green bean. Without thinking, I squashed it. Then, too late, I remembered, ooh, my produce is pesticide-free. Maybe I'm supposed to refrain from brute force, too. <laughs> I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do with my gold share of bugs. Escort them outside, invite them to stay for dinner. This organic thing was going to take a little getting used to. All that afternoon, I looked forward to preparing my first vegan, all-organic dinner. Then about 4.30, my friend Tracy called. Hey, a bunch of us are going out for pizza after work. You want to join us? <laughs> the next night, I had a dance class, just time for a quick sandwich beforehand. The night after that, I was doing a story program at a dinner event. And so it went. And week after week, the gold chairs piled up, untouched in the refrigerator. The pile got bigger and bigger and bigger until it reached some critical mass and started getting smaller and smaller and smaller as the vegetables liquefied and turned to mush. I'd pour out the crisper drawer and then reload with the next gold share installment of corn, cauliflower, crowder peas. What was I thinking? I was not a cook. I did not have time for all the peeling, baking, braising, broiling, steaming, sautéing, mashing, smashing that real food required. I needed to just let my gold share membership expire and my refrigerator revert back to its original purpose as a large, unattractive storage bin for film, batteries, and half-empty bottles of nail polish. <laughs> I kind of felt like Zsa Zsa Gabor when someone once asked her what she kept in her refrigerator. She said, half a salami and a corsage. <laughs> but then, with six weeks left in my gold share season, my then 83-year-old mother moved to town with her magic pan. Now, in many cultures, there is a folktale about a woman and her magic pan. The details vary country to country, but the idea is basically always the same. Some stranger comes to town, some local woman helps him out, and in return for her generosity, the stranger gives the woman a magic pan. Sometimes a shiny skillet, sometimes a big round pot, sometimes a black kettle, but always whatever she cooks in that magic pan is delicious and there's always more than enough. 
Well, in our household, that was no folktale. The woman was my mother, and the magic pan was a huge, heavy aluminum frying pan that she got in 1943 from the Jewel Tea Man. <laughs> Any of you remember the Jewel Tea Company? For those of you who don't, in 1943, the Jewel Tea Company sold tea and coffee and spices and baking soda, baking powder, flour, those kinds of things, out of little brown trucks that drove through residential neighborhoods and sold, in 1943, sold millions of dollars worth of these products to mostly stay-at-home wives and mothers who either didn't drive in 1943 or didn't have access to a car to get to the grocery store easily. The company was hugely successful, partly because their products were good, partly because of the convenience of home delivery, but mostly because of their program of points and premiums. Everything you bought, every tin of nutmeg, every box of baking soda, every can of coffee, earned you points, and you accumulated those points until you had enough to cash them in on a premium, either cookware, pots and pans, or dishes. Their most popular pattern was something called autumn leaves, a gold background, orange and green flowers. Is that what you had? You know, this stuff sells for hundreds of dollars on eBay. <laughs> Well, in 1943, my mother was a young bride, newly arrived in Baltimore, Maryland, where she had gone to join my father, who worked at the Glen L. Martin Company, building B-26 bombers for the war. And when my mother arrived in Baltimore, she was met by the welcome wagon and the jewel tea man. And it wasn't long before she had accumulated enough points to get this huge, heavy aluminum frying pan with a close-fitting lid and a wooden handle that had a long screw down the middle of it so you could unscrew the wooden handle, put the pot in the oven, and the handle wouldn't burn up. It was called a chicken fryer. And she used it to cook everything. As the 1940s turned into the 50s, 60s, 70s, as she and my dad moved from Baltimore back to Reading, Pennsylvania, as they accumulated four children, whatever she cooked in that pan was always delicious. There was always way more than enough. And it wasn't just the six of us that the pan had to feed. My dad would bring buddies home from work. We kids were always asking if our friends could stay for supper. My mother would get a phone call. Helen, Ruth and I are taking a little Sunday afternoon drive. We're kind of close to your neighborhood. We could be there, I don't know, 5, 5.30. And always the magic pan delivered. Pork chops, fried chicken, Swiss steak, sloppy joes, salmon patties, Always delicious, always more than enough. Of course, the pan was huge. It was enormous. As a child, I would help my mother with the dishes. I remember I would have to rest it on the kitchen table to be able to dry it, and it would take all of my little nine-year-old muscles to wrestle it into the drawer underneath the oven where it was stored. And six weeks left in the gold share season, that pan and my mother moved to Birmingham. <laughs> Well, about three weeks before she moved, I went up to Pennsylvania to help her pack. And when I got there, I was amazed at how much she had already gotten rid of. More than 70 years in one place, you accumulate a lot of stuff, but most of it was gone. Sofa beds to the Goodwill, clothing to the women's homeless shelter, canned goods to the church food pantry. Mother, I said, I can't believe how much you were able to let go of. She said, well, memories are what's important, and they're portable, and they don't have to be packed, but kitchen things do. Come here and help me with this. I took a box, went into the kitchen, started loading up saucepans, lids, coffee pots, small frying pan. I said, gee, you know, I hate that you gave away that big frying pan. I, 
I guess it was just too heavy and clunky to keep around, too big for cooking for one person, huh? She said, what frying pan? I said, you know, the big one, the huge one, the one you cooked everything in. She said, the one in your hand. <laughs> the frying pan in my hand was 10 inches in diameter, two inches deep with a wooden handle with a screw down. This is the pan? This is the pan you use to cook all that food? Yeah, she said, I've had it more than 60 years. How did you ever cook all that food in this little pan? She smiled. Magic, I guess. And in just a few weeks, that pan and she were all settled in in Birmingham. The first Wednesday after they were there, I went to pick up my wax-coated cardboard box full of vegetables as I loaded it into the back seat of the car. I had an idea. I drove straight to Mother's new house. I said, Mother, how would you like to help me out with some eggplant, some red beets, some green beans, some bell pepper? Before she could protest that it was too much, I said, just use what you want, and I'll come back, get the rest later. <laughs> and then I drove away, knowing that the magic pan was in town, and its mojo was working for me. Sure enough, three days later, I left her house with a stack of individual plastic containers of eggplant parmesan, pickled red beet salad, green bean and red bell pepper saute. The next gold share installment was transformed into Swiss steak with carrots and onions and potatoes, chicken barley vegetable soup, baked sweet potato and apple casserole. Every week, I would drive up, deliver a wax-coated cardboard box full of vegetables, and drive away with a stack of little individual plastic containers of dinner for the rest of the week. It was my own personal version of Meals on Wheels. <laughs> to augment our supply of produce, we started to play the grocery game. Every Wednesday, my mother would scour the newspaper supermarket ads and write out a big chart comparing and contrasting who had what on special and what prices were better. If she'd had a computer, it would have been an Excel spreadsheet, but no computers for her. I don't want to get addicted to those chat rooms. And so she'd... <laughs> write it all out longhand, and then on Thursday morning, we'd head off on our supermarket scavenger hunt. Bananas, 33 cents at Piggly Wiggly, ground sirloin, $1.98 at Bruno's, cashews, $2.49 a can at Winn-Dixie. Once we scored a perfect trifecta, Hunt's tomato ketchup, buy one bottle, get one free, plus a 50-cent off coupon doubled every day, and the 5% off senior discount on Wednesdays at Publix! Yes! <laughs> It was kind of like those MasterCard ads. Money saved on groceries, driving all over town for the weekly specials, $10. Money spent on gasoline, driving all over town for the weekly specials, $30. <laughs> A fun of spending the morning driving around, talking and laughing with my mom, priceless. Well, we didn't sign up for another season of gold share. We just added the farmer's market to our supermarket scavenger hunt. And besides, when it comes to good eating, healthy eating, food that nourishes not just the body, but the soul, who needs organic when you've got magic on your side? <laughs> Thank you.
Dolores Hydock with a story called Sharing the Gold. For more of Dolores' great work, you can visit her website, storypower.org. Now, up next, Christopher Liebrick with a tall tale about a cowboy named Tebow living in the Oregon high desert. And when Tebow catches a giant fish and trains it to act like a dog, what could possibly go wrong? Find out in Tebow and His Pet Fish by Christopher Liebrick here on The Appleseed. This one's about a cowboy who lived out in the Oregon desert. His name was Tebow, Tebow Ortego, and he worked for one of the best cattlemen around, a man by the name of Pete French. In fact, if you go way out to the Oregon desert, you can still find a little town out there named after Pete French. It's called French Glen. And that is where Tebow lived and worked. And Tebow became famous for the stories he used to tell and he swore every one of them was true. And at the end of every one, he'd always say, and if old Pete French were here, he'd prove it. One time, Tebow was out fishing in the Little Blitzen River, and he pulled in a nice, big, fat trout, 17 inches long, but Tebow... Rather than cook that fish up and eat it, he decided to keep it as a pet. And he taught it to follow him around like a dog. And it did. It followed him out to the barn in the morning when he did his chores. Followed him out to the fields in the afternoons. And at night when Tebow was ready to turn in, it followed him right into the bunkhouse. Lay down right beside him while he slept. That fish, it even followed him into town when he went to get supplies. Well, after a while, Tebow, he wasn't really too sure how he felt about this little fish hopping along behind him everywhere he went, and people were starting to stare. So finally, he specked that the only decent thing to do was to buy that fish a nice set of clothes and a little cowboy hat. Well, as you can imagine, that just made it worse. And then... The children started coming from all over. They all wanted to play with Tebow's pet fish. And they played skip rope and hide and seek and kick the can. And you know something? That fish, he became a regular little entertainer. He started doing imitations of Tebow's bow-legged walk and Charlie the grumpy ranch cook and even of old Pete French himself. And those kids, they'd squeal with laughter. Well, Tebow soon realized that those kids, they weren't coming around to hear his stories anymore. They all just wanted to play with his pet fish. And it was right about then that that fish stopped minding Tebow. In the morning, when Tebow got up to do his chores, his fish had sleep in late. And at night, when Tebow was ready to turn in, his fish would stay outside on the porch a little bit longer, just smoking on his pipe. Well, it got so bad. It got to the point where Tebow and his pet fish, they weren't even speaking. Well, one night, they were getting ready for the Harney County dance up in Burns. Tebow had just finished taking his bath and he was getting dressed. And his fish was standing up on top of the dresser, looking into the mirror, just admiring himself and his Sunday best. He was feeling so proud about himself, he started dancing a little jig and singing, I'm better looking than Tebow, I'm better looking than Tebow. And all at once, 
that fish slipped off the dresser, fell into the bathtub, and drowned in the little bit of water at the bottom of the tub. That fish had been walking around on land so long it had forgotten how to swim. And that is how Tebow and his pet fish parted company. Now, it occurs to me you might not believe that story. But if old Pete French were here, he'd prove it. Tebow and his pet fish. And our last story for this hour comes from Bob Reiser. Bob has appeared at storytelling festivals all across the country, telling original stories for all ages. And in this tale, we hear the story of the swan tenor, the greatest singer of all the swans, an original fable for all ages. Here's Bob Reiser on The Appleseed. He had a hunk like an angel. A tremulous, mellifluous hunk that thrilled the heart and woke the sleeping birds. He was the great swan tenor, and what a magnificent voice he had. There wasn't a creature who did not recognize his great voice hunking, or a little swan of a Bethlehem, or an aria from Puccini's Madame Butterball. Whenever they heard him, all the swans swelled with pride and boasted, He's one of us! Well, to be honest, the swan tenor was pretty unswan-like. For one thing, he wouldn't fly. I will not flap my wings like some common bird. I am a tenor, he would shout. And when he went on tour, his valet and pilot and chauffeur carried him, two supporting his breast, one holding up his tail feathers. They carried him across the sky to his waiting public. However, like most birds... The tenor swan did love his food. Grain and grass and fish and algae, you name it, he ate it. And after each concert, his fans showered him with breadcrumbs and naturally he ate that too. So he developed another unswan-like characteristic. A belly. A magnificent broad expanse of snowy white. He got so fat he could barely walk, let alone fly. But he sung like an angel, and for that his fans would forgive him anything. The end of his career began on a concert trip to Peoria. His flying crew had now grown to six. It took that many to get him into the air. Unfortunately, they were all out with the swan flu, which had birds hawking and sneezing from Chicago to Cancun. So it was an inexperienced crew that met him at the airport that day. Snow covered the runways. Ice drove mercilessly from the sky. You'll have to cancel, insisted his manager. What? And disappoint my fans in Peoria? <laughs> Never! 
he honked magnificently. And so, with ice on their wings and snow on their feathers, the substitute crew tried to lift him into the air. They might have done it, too, if he hadn't gorged himself on two loaves of bread and a dozen fish for dinner. Well, with two supporting his breast and two supporting his belly and two supporting his tail, they flapped, and they flapped, and they flapped. Nothing happened. Put some wing into it, boys! We're trying. Couldn't you, couldn't you, couldn't you flap just a little bit for takeoff? He gave them an icy stare. Tenors, do not flap. And so they tugged, and they pulled, and they heaved, and they hoed, and slowly, so slowly, they lifted him into the air. Whoops! He slipped right out of their grasp and onto the runway. The next day, the world read the shocking headlines. Swan injured. His picture blazed from the front page. Lying propped up in his hospital bed with his broken leg in a cast suspended in the air, the great bird proclaiming to the world, I will sing again. Soon enough, the great swan recovered. Alas, with all the get-well baskets of grain and berries, as he grew stronger, he also grew fatter. And by the time of his release, he could hardly fit into a wheelchair. The orderlies wheeled him to the front door of the hospital, and there on the great steps in front of him were his fans, hundreds of them, thousands, fur and fin, cheering and chirping his name. Peek me up so they can see me! Ah, but sir, sir, your leg! Peek me up! And so... A dozen swan orderlies lifted the huge form from the wheelchair. He stood for a moment, looking down at the waving and cheering throng. He lifted his hand gently, like the Pope blessing the faithful on Easter morning. And slowly, ever so slowly, he lost his balance and began to topple down the steps. Down he fell, faster and faster, tumbling down the stairs, bouncing from step to step, and never once did he even try to open his wings to stop his fall. Save yourself, shouted the crowd. Fly! Fly! Tenors, do not fly! He called as he hit the bottom step with a thunk. The whole world wept that next morning. Every major city held a memorial concert. The ghostly whisper of his famous hunk played again and again over a thousand thousand radios. Newspapers with black banners told his story over and over and over as if the public could not weep enough. 
only one renegade newspaper ran a headline with a different story. It said, To fall down the stairs and break his neck, a ridiculous way for a swan to die. But what a ridiculous way to live, to have two good wings and never to fly. Obviously, it was not written by an opera lover. The Swan Tenor from Bob Reiser here on The Appleseed. A pleasure to bring you that tale as well as stories from Christopher Liebrich and Dolores Hydock and Dan Kedding and, of course, a conversation with Rachel Wadham, an entry of the Radio Family Journal and more today. You can always visit us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. You can find full hour-long episodes of the show filled with stories for you and your family and also mini episodes of the show. We call them Appleseed Extras, usually just a few minutes long in case you only have a few minutes and you'd like to spend them with a great story. You can find there now a story called Elk and Wren by Margaret Reed MacDonald, one you'll want to tune in for. This hour was written by Kendra Hanna. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. Our producer, Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.